Well, hey there. Welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State here as always. Well, almost always, but I think generally speaking, because say always, my good friend, Robert Hassler. Uh, we are coming to you uh, on this uh, end of August. So it's kind of weird to say that, that like summer's pretty much all over now. And uh, insane. I know quickly moving on into December. Uh, December. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, you know, I actually was listening to the radio earlier this morning. I was listening to Bloomberg radio and they were talking about uh, the holiday shopping is coming up. And I was like, oh my gosh, why did y'all say that? Why did you say that? September. You're right. You're right. September's coming. Um, and last week we started something of a conversation around uh, what the Westminster Confession of Faith had to say in terms of our relationship to civil government. And what we wanted to do was look at that a little more uh, systematically over time. Uh, for one, look, and if I, if I were to think where this is, makes the most sense um, and is most um, on top of our minds, it has to do with Afghanistan right now and the pulling out of troops and the replacement with Taliban now leading the country. And when that comes to mind, we think of Romans 13 and that uh, the enemy does not punish those who do good, but those who do evil. Well, how do we think about that scripture? How do we think about that passage when we know that um, the Taliban do things that are seeming as petty as attacking soccer players? They, 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 I use that as an example because there's a story on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this morning about um, this soccer, young soccer player who died trying to flee. He was one of the people who fell off the C-17 as it was, it was flying out of the, out of the country. And, and so, you know, you have them that, that execute people uh, that attack women um, and, and then harass even on what we would think would be the most like innocuous event, something playing soccer. And so how do we, think of the terms of of civil government its job and its responsibility and illegitimate um manifestations of government and so what we wanted to do is look at westminster confession of faith chapter 23 which is of the civil magistrates divided into four sections and then four paragraphs rather and each week wanted to just talk about one of them but robert as a that's kind of my little prelude to why we think this is good to talk about. I want to ask you the same thing. What is, what are some reasons that you think this is an important and valuable discussion to have? Well, I think you're, you're right to point out what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And that's really at the top of everyone's mind. And I think it really does open a lot of questions about um, government in particular, bad government and how do Christians um, understand uh what you know is going on i think also you could say sort of broadly speaking that uh, the relationship between the church and state has taken on uh, a lot of uh or, or i guess people are a lot more aware of the relationship between church and state in america um really since 2016 and the the infamous you know 80 something percent um of evangelicals and support for donald trump and then uh a lot of uh, uh, anxiety over the 2020 election and, and what um, Christians should be expecting out of the state and what its relationship to, should be. And, and I think there's been a lot of work being done 
in sort of crafting a, a political theology or a public theology that fits in our moment of 2021 and, and the state uh, or the, 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 the what, what the state has become uh, since uh, its founding in, in the 18th century. But I think there's also another reason why we should look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it doesn't really have anything to do with current events or hot topics, but uh, just by the fact that we work for ministry to state. I mean, we work uh, in a ministry where we serve those who serve in government. Um, these are folks who have been called into this work uh, and have given their careers to it in many cases. And um, I don't know uh, if uh, a Christian who's been called into the work of government especially somebody who um, shares our reformed convictions or maybe as a member of our denomination, the PCA, it's going to be hard for that person, I think, to really um, conceptualize their own vocation and what they're, what they're doing and what the Lord has called them to if they don't have a firm grasp of what's stated here in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23. Because this is what um, the Westminster divines determined was, you know, this, this is the basic building blocks of a, of a reformed public theology, what we believe. Um, about the church and the state and what the state's duties are and what the church duties are and how they're supposed to relate to one another. And uh, if you're going to be a Christian that enters that space vocationally, you, ha you have to know what, what's going on in this, in this chapter. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally, I think that's such a great way to say it. One, like you said, we think this is helpful and beneficial. It gives some clear categories and it gives a really wonderful, you know, a pole to be tethered to, to know how far out and where you can go and what are the boundaries and limitations of orthodoxy uh, in the reform tradition for engaging the state. And then, um, or maybe you're not reformed and maybe you come from a more Anabaptist perspective or something like that, or maybe Roman Catholic. I, I have no idea, but you know, hopefully this, these episodes that we walk through Westminster confession of faith will challenge you in your own understanding, or maybe enlighten some, some things that you maybe d disagree with the Westminster divines on or disagree with us on, but um, hopefully uh, it's all for mutual edification uh, so that we can uh, bring glory to the kingdom of God. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And so what, what I'll do now, Robert, is I'm going to read this first paragraph. It's a short paragraph. Don't be worried. It will not take long to read. I'm going to read the modern version just because I it's it's just more updated language. Same point as the historic, but I'm going to read this real quick. It says, God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world has ordained civil authorities to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of those who do evil. And there are proof texts there that we could look at Romans 13, 1 through 4, and then we could look at 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 as two examples of um, biblical texts that support this idea. Uh, and But Robert, I guess I want to ask you first, what, what jumps out to you most about this paragraph. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's, there's so much in it. I actually wrote a newsletter um, for a lot of the folks who support um, uh, my ministry uh, really talking about this because uh, after our last week's episode, it's been something I've really turned to um, over the last week or so to really um, uh, firm up what I believe about the relation between the church and the state. And so I was just sharing some thoughts. Uh, I was just sharing some thoughts with them. Um, I think really that first sentence has so much packed into it. 
God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. Um, uh, I'm focusing really on that, has ordained civil authorities. Um, I think something that sticks out to me in sort of, maybe it's a like there's a sort of uh, a theoretical or maybe a metaphysical aspect here. And then there's also a sort of practical historical uh, uh, case here. I think to start with the metaphysical thing, there's this idea that God has ordained, you know, government broadly. Um, this idea that um, the Lord has, by his common grace and divine will, instituted government, a small g government, um, to order uh, and uh, direct nature and creation in a such a way that it, it goes, it steers away from chaos and anarchy. And I think what's interesting is when you read um, a lot of uh, Protestant history, there are so many theologians who point out the fact that even the, the basis of government's uh, totalitarianism is a preferable option to anarchy. Anarchy is the absolute ultimate um, uh, uh undoing of creation i mean it, it is it is the it is the political theology or political ideology of satan is is anarchy is to overthrow all order and good um and so i think that we need to see government as a as part of god's will for creation and that that's challenging for especially americans who are right of center who have been who sort of been raised in the uh the post reagan years of thinking government is the bad guy always and every time, and we should uh, essentially avoid it at all costs, or we should oppose it at all costs. Um, and what's interesting here is that the Westminster Divines, um, obviously speaking many, many, many years before sort of modern American democracy, but are saying that no government uh, as, as, a, as a part of God's common grace for fallen man is, is part of the program, that it's good. Yeah. Um, in line with that, we were talking about this and we can think about the idea of anarchy. And the question is, I would love to see a study out there. How long do anarchies actually last? Like for what amount of time is it even possible for an anarchy to exist? And we're, you know, anarchy is different from a communitarian setup where everyone's equal. Like that's not the same thing. Uh, we think about contemporary examples going on in Oregon in Portland with the, the right. autonomous zone. I mean, how quickly did that actually turn into uh, its own form of government and hierarchy? Oh yeah. And- it had a society with rules and people understood sort of placement in that system. I mean, yeah. Anarchy, you're, you're right to point out anarchy. It, it seems, I can't think of something at the top of my head that has lasted, you know, longer than maybe the span of an evening. <laughs> well, and, and uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, uh, in his book on confessing the faith, faith has this line that um, talking about kind of Christian sects that try to form within society. And he has this line, he says, for what it's worth, each one of these uh, to date has descended into anarchy and gross immorality. He's like, <laughs> it may not be worth much, but the truth is every single one, every time this has been tried, it has ended up uh, completely devolving, which we'll get it somewhat in the next week. But I think the point stands for uh anarchy as well that it it doesn't seem to last long um and i think again like you said more importantly for us it is not biblically um 
prescribed certainly or permitted either. Um, you know, as we, as we look, you, you have that, you said this metaphysical and then the, this practical, you have the transcendent and the imminent ways that these work is that, that God is the Lord and King overall. So he is the one who is ruling overall, which means that everything that's going to be said next is, is under him is logically from him and is authoritatively hierarchically under him and his rule and reign. So it goes on that. It says the civil magistrates who are under him. Uh, and then it says this is over the people for his own glory. So that is over the people for God's own glory. And what that makes me think of is the passage in Paul where he says, fathers do not exacerbate your children. And the reason I thought about that, and, and this is somewhat fitting for our reformed teaching in that when, when we think about, you know, children obey your parents, it, it's speaking to authorities in general, not just parents only. But when authorities read that, they are to say, okay, I am to lead these people in such a way that God is glorified by the laws that are passed, by the behavior that is encouraged, by the society that results. That is, and here at least, how the ruling of people ought to be uh, thought of. And, and then again, it logically ends with the sentences with for the public good. So we'll get to that eventually. But when you think of this idea of the uh, civil authorities being over people for God's glory, what, how do you, what do you think that looks like? Yeah. I mean, so I think of sort of the, the notion that um, uh, to whom much has been given, there is, there's a great responsibility. Um, if civil authorities are under God and that he has placed them there. I mean, Job says uh, in uh, Job 12, 23, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. So any civil authority has only risen to that um, level uh, because of uh, uh, the will of God. And so because they owe their uh, authority to, um, uh, to God, they are therefore duty bound to follow his ways and to give him glory. Um, and that's really important, I think, for when we see bad government, because I think the, the idea is that, well, if, if there's bad government, if there's evil leaders and tyrants and despots, um, well, the only hope is if we overthrow them, if we get rid of them, um, that's, that's the only hope for justice. And what I think is interesting is what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying. And put that aside for a second. We can, that's a whole nother conversation. What the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying, at least in a, in a very sort of um, uh, uh, foundational way, is that, no, those, those leaders, even those evil leaders, will be held to account by God because they are responsible to follow God and to follow his will. And they, are, they, will, account, um, they will make an account to him for what they did uh, with the authority that God placed them or what, with the authority that God placed on them. Yes, absolutely. He is, he is King. He is the one who ultimate um, justice will be measured by. And it makes me think also the, the um, quote and I'll paraphrase somewhat. Uh, um, I'll misquote it to some degree on accident, of course, but like uh, the quote by MLK, where is uh, unjust laws are no laws at all. That might be front letter from Birmingham jail. And, you know, there, the question then becomes, okay, how do we discern what are unjust laws? What are the principles that we put in place? But 
the what he says stands and stays true if government is placed under god and if god is going to be the the one who measures that which is just and good and true and if there are laws that are dissonant with that are are out of accord with that then they are in need of being revision revised of reworked um of rethought out and i you know in line with this also robert is something that comes to my mind with this idea for god's glory um in in one sense it's easier to imagine this in 16th century england um in early 17th century America. Um, it is starts to get more difficult in 21st century America. And we are a highly, highly pluralistic uh, country, nation um, with a lot of different people. Um, how do we think of pluralism in our context uh, and the government being responsible to rule over people with wildly different religions, faiths, worldviews, and them also being responsible ultimately to the, to whether or not he's, they're caring for people for God's glory. That's a really good question. I, you know, to be completely honest, I'm such a history nerd that I tend to look backwards that I haven't really spent a lot of time reading about sort of pluralism in America. Um, I, I tend to gravitate towards the books where, you know, everyone's just sort of some, some version of reformed um, and maybe a few Catholics and Lutherans uh, spattered in there. But it, it's a really important question for 2021. I think really maybe the key is to look at that, that last phrase of uh, the defense encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of those who do evil. Um, you know, bringing justice on evildoers brings glory to God. And so does um, uh, encouraging the good. And what's, what's interesting. And I think what's probably baked and what I think is baked into sort of uh, the founding of America, which in many ways is a, a, a pluralistic society at its, at its founding. Um, uh, there's a lot of agreement about, you know, what things are evil and what things are good. And I think some agreement at least still exists today. Obviously those things are being complicated more and more um, whether you want to consider uh, things like uh, uh, sexual identity uh, and, and things like that. But, you know, America broadly agrees, you know, you almost unanimously that murder and crime are bad. And um, it, it's therefore good uh, that the government discourages that behavior and punishes those uh, who do those things. And, and we all sort of innately feel this, even if we sort of disagree on certain po- politics, I'm thinking sort of of like um, uh, uh, issues around criminal justice and policing. Uh, still people, everyone agrees that like, it's, it's not just for citizens to live in neighborhoods where they are constantly fearful of their lives. Um, people who engage in gang or criminal behavior uh, need to be punished. And um, that that leads to flourishing in those communities. And that's good. Um, I think also one thing that has maybe fallen more out of vogue in America is the idea of encouraging good um, because we tend to be a sort of, well, good's whatever you decide it is. So you, it's not the government's role, but we also don't really uh, believe that um, because 
we all sort of like recognize and it, it's it's kind of cynically comes out in like our um I, I think i see like the universal agreement of this it kind of cynically comes out in our tax policy we sort of like all agreed that everybody should be you know some sort of reward uh, whether that's a few dollars off your taxes, if you're giving to charitable causes, like if you're giving to things that are good, like, you know, helping the homeless or uh, taking care of the sick, um, you know, or donating to an organization that, you know, does X, Y, Z uh, in, in, in underprivileged communities, that, that you should be rewarded for that. that. That's a good thing. And we should, we should encourage that by means of the state and by means of law and legislation. Um, and there's many, many other examples you could point to with, with that. But um, I think that that's an example where even in a pluralistic society where there's a lot of disagreement about, you know, who is God? What, you know, what do we call that God? Um, is there a God where there's a lot of disagreement on that? We seem to still innately uh, agree uh, in a large measure about what is good and what is bad. Um, and that's a lot that has to do with our, our being created in the image of God and having the law of God written on our hearts as much as we want to disregard it and ignore it. Sometimes it's still there. Yeah, which brings us back to our favorite, our recently favorite historian, Tom Holland, um, and his theory and his history book that really points out, look, the West is a Christian uh, part of the world. It has been to its deepest, deepest ideas. It has been influenced and affected by Christendom. Uh, even when people most want to get away from it, it is an inescapable reality. And so when people decide that infidelity is bad, which look, we can quickly get into the case of like the deliberate attempt to revolt against Christianity, to subvert Christian turnouts and, and to offer something else where we see the damage that is done, but that, but that people are borrowing from Christian categories and uh, moral capital from Christianity in order to come up with these things that they think are bad, you know, and I agree that, you know, broadly speaking, we can say that, um, you know, murder is wrong, that abortion is wrong, that marriage is between a man and a woman, um, that we should provide tax benefits to the people who give to charitable causes. All I can ground that. Then you start getting into things that really do affect society, like no-fault divorce. Um, and we start saying, look, no-fault divorce seems like a terrible decision. The other side is, uh, I'm watching The Crown recently, and Prince Philip's private secretary is being unfaithful to his wife and his wife wants a divorce, but she can only get a divorce if she has evidence of one of three things, one of which is infidelity. And uh, she can't get it because the woman that he's having the affair with won't come forward because it'll cost um, her her job. Uh, eventually, it, it, well, I'm, I won't spoil it for people. I'm way behind in terms of seasons, but then you see like, okay, well, maybe there is some case where like divorce needs to be easier for people when they're in terrible circumstance. I mean, those are few and far between, but when we get to issues like, again, like no fault divorce issues that are, um, where it makes our society makes quick room for the individual's choice and like aesthetic tastes of the moment, this story by Bertrand Russell, where he was riding on his bike through London and realized, Oh, I don't think I'm in love with my wife anymore. And so he ends up leaving her. It's like, well, that's not a moral that there's no guidance other than like an immediate aesthetic taste that you mm -hmm. have. There is no, you did not make a moral decision. You made an immoral decision by fact of uh, violating a moral command, which was to stay married to the woman that he married. But, you know, how do we, how do we think more deeply even about these controversial 
decisions and laws that are in place. Well, that's you're exactly right. And that really right there, you, you've pointed out the crux of the common good of what does it mean to do, uh, you know, to punish evil or to, to reward good or to encourage good in the context of the common good. Um, because there's a lot of these policies where, you know, there are in some sense uh, people who benefit and then people who don't benefit, you know, no, no, do- no fault divorce. Um, you know, you, you, you brought up that case, you know, for an example of some, you know, in the crown, um, there's also a ton of people that have abused uh, uh, no fault divorce and it's hurt a lot of children of, of marriages. Um, and it's, it's degraded marriage in the eyes of society in many ways. Um, and so, you know, that needs to have, we need to have a, a sort of an ethical judgment on is, is this law causing more harm than doing good? You know, another policy that I think of, you know, you can take it sort of maybe even more out of the um, what we tend to define as sort of like social or moral issues, marriage, uh, child rearing, parenting, things like that. You can bring it into economics. Um, you know, what has, uh, what have been the effects of sort of globalization and trade? Um, well, for a lot of people, there's been a lot of benefits, right? People have cheaper products so they can have more money so that they can spend it on things like paying for their children's education or healthcare or things like that. Um, and at the same time, a lot of the communities that, um, uh, especially in the middle of America, uh, that were manufacturing hubs have lost in sort of the, the quote unquote trade wars. Um, and look what's happened to a lot of those communities. Families have been totally disrupted. Um, drug addiction is very high in a lot of these places. Uh, people, there's been a sort of a, a um, uh, brain drain from those places. So even the, the people that um, could be really uh, beneficial in terms of, you know, restoring communities tend to move out and go to the coasts. Um, so it's just, it's a, it's a problem. And so you see, you know, so when you look at that issue of um, globalization, free trade, um, we really do need to ask this question of the common good. What is, what would be the common good uh, in these questions of economics? And I, what I think what we want to say here is that these questions are complicated. Like it involves a lot of debate and discussion. And um, if if, in the end, we have to have a system that makes these decisions for us. And that's what we've been handed down to us by the founding founding fathers of this country. Um, Sometimes that system produces some results. Sometimes it produces the other results. Um, It, that's really not what we want to debate. The point is, though, that uh, the government does have this obligation to the common good. Um, and so as Christians, how do we how do we think about that? Yeah, and we're at such a um, we're at such a pivot point. We're at such a crucial moment because when this document was written, when you look at the 17th, 18th, 19th, early 20th, early 20th century, not as much, but the there was a, a generally agreed upon definition of the common good. There was a more generally agreed upon definition of the common good. Now, I will say with the extreme caveat of people making justifications for slavery to stay in place because it would too disrupt the fabric of society to, to abolish slavery. Okay, that is an egregious mistake and a clear violation of the common good. But that is an example of people using some kind of common good argument to keep in force something that is an abominable evil. Um, so with that massive caveat in place, there is the truth that we are, the, any any agreed upon definition of the common good, what that, that there is common good, everyone will say, sure. What is common good? 
is highly tenuous and, and really disagreed upon and requires a lot of discussion. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that these conversations can happen at such a large scale because there are too many different outlets for people to have their own echo chamber entered into and discussed. It has to happen in close knit communities that are rubbing elbows, uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, people that disagree with them to work out what is the common good look like. We, we have a responsibility as Christians if we believe that God is Lord over all, that this is his universe to be declared for his glory, for people to live in a place that is full of the common good, we have a responsibility to show them that what is said in scripture is, is true of that is responsible. I'm working through Charles Taylor's book, the ethics of authenticity. And one of the things that he says in there that I think is really interesting. Like there's a real criticism of you get two large groups. Those are say, authenticity itself is the problem. The other group says authenticity is the best thing we could ever have. And he's like, look, both of those are wrong. Uh, authenticity is not the problem or the solution, but the kind of authenticity, the what of authenticity, the what makes something authentic. And ultimately that is going to be where, where are we placed? Uh, who are we under? How are we made as, as humans? And what does it look like for society to be quote unquote, authentic? What does it look like for the common good to exist authentically? And what is required for it to be filled out and actualized? Um, that's a that's a really good point. I, I think what we're sort of dancing around is this idea of, of like subsidiarity, of sort of bringing issues to bear on the local and immediate context which which they happen. And to be completely honest, when I think of the common good and, and the debate about the common good, my mind goes to COVID protocols and COVID policies. Um, and what's interesting is that when, when the pandemic started, there was such an emphasis on a sort of like, this is going to be the nationwide uh, policy of handling COVID. There's going to be an X amount of day shutdown. There's going to be this and that and all these different things. And what was interesting was that there, I always felt like what was lacking from the conversation was an acknowledgement that different communities are made up of different kinds of people and organized differently. And so certainly a stricter uh, shutdown on transportation uh, and traveling made a lot of sense for place for highly dense populations like places like New York City, LA, Chicago. Um, but what about places that are far more rural that don't have as many people um, where there's less interactions going on on a daily basis? That always seemed to me to be a question of, you know, uh, the common good in New York City might, in in in, term, in certain instances like COVID, might be different than how it is in Helena, Montana. I mean, and I, I'm not saying I know the direct answers to all these things. I'm just pointing out these things. I mean, when I was thinking about how even churches or uh, different uh, communities were thinking about COVID policies, you know, to be completely honest, I think the way that you decide to handle COVID is gonna is gonna differ a lot if you are a a community made up of mostly 20 to 25 year olds uh, than a retirement community. I mean, those things are just different and it's okay. And, and, um, uh, and people can be, and I think people can actually be pretty respectful and understanding of things like that. You know, when you, obviously uh, when you go to, to a retirement community, you're going to be a lot more aware of like, Hey, do I don't feel so great today? Uh, than if you go to like sort of, you know, Panama City Beach during college spring break. It's just one of those things. And that's kind of how the common good works too. 
I think one thing I hear you saying is that with the general principle is whether you're in rural Iowa or New York City is what can the government do to protect the living of life? Like protection is not just enough. We need to get on with life is not enough. No, what's needed is how can the government react in such a way and act in such a way that they are protecting the living of life. Um, and that I think in any area is what is sought after and how that can best be done has to be considered. And it's not super clean or um, easy, but it is the responsibility. I think that's really well said. That's a, that's a perfect way of summing up what I was sort of stumbling through. <laughs> well, thanks Rob. I'm so glad that I can clean up your mess uh, as you lull to yourself. But hey, I think that's probably a good place for us to end this, to land this. We didn't even get to our favorite, well, our favorite medieval church-state dynamic duo, Charlemagne and Alcuin. I'm sure we'll get to them next week as we actually start looking at the Christian magistrates, Christian leaders, and how they can think about that relationship. And we'll continue on this conversation. But um, it has been great to be with you guys this evening, uh, well, this afternoon. and. Uh, you can follow Robert on Twitter at RD Hasser. You can follow me at Stockdale Will. Although I am considering getting rid of all social media. I think uh, there's there's something. I know, I know, I know. My massive footprint might just disappear. Yeah, exactly. But, um, I think it might also be worth just pointing out real quick. If somebody, you know, say you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, I'd really like to dive into uh, the Westminster Conf- Confession of Faith more. Um, I just wanted to point out this resource that Will and I have both been working out of. Uh, it's Chad Van Dixhorn's Confessing the Faith. It was put out by Banner of Truth. Um, it's a fantastic reader uh, of the Westminster Confession of Faith and actually reads far more like a devotional than it does like a textbook or even a commentary. So um, if you are interested in that, we would we would highly recommend that resource to you. It's definitely, it's the one we're working through and the one we use and would highly recommend it to you. I, yeah, totally agree. I think it makes a great devotional. And so with that, we will be back with you next week. 